I sent a message to maybe 10 friends like hey some of you might know Ev and I have chatted to some people about this and I don't have any answers but maybe we should chat about this and so I opened a Facebook group and I said I'm gonna make it private and I've only sent the link to you 10 but feel free to share it with anybody that you think would be interested in this conversation and I thought maybe four or five of them would be brave enough and within four days I had almost 400 women inside that group. This is Down to Earth Conversations where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. Welcome to all my new listeners, and of course, welcome back to my regulars. We've touched on sexuality a bit on the podcast, but we haven't specifically talked about sex. Well, that changes today. My guest today is Meg Cowan, sex and intimacy coach. After sex became a problem part of her own marriage, Meg and her husband sought help. Through that experience, Meg opened up to her friends and found out the need to be talking about this was great. So she set about doing some study and she now helps hundreds of people heal from hurts and progress to loving themselves and having more fulfilling sex lives and relationships. We talk about Meg's journey into this work, the unhelpful advice she was given along the way, particularly in the church. We address the negative effects that the evangelical church's purity culture has had on so many and in what ways Meg looks to address that. And we talk about the big killer in all of this, shame. It's such an important conversation, and this is just an entry point. This is episode 78 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Meg Cowan. Welcome, Meg. It's great to have you on the podcast. Kia ora. Nice. Thanks so much for having me. And for those who haven't heard of you, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? Nor here, Kui. Who are you? Where are you from? Yeah. Hi. So my name is Meg. Um, I am from Aotearoa um, and I love to call this place home. This is my landing place. This is definitely um, a lot of where my heart is. Uh, but I grew up around um, in different parts of the Pacific and um, with like a real desire to travel from a young age that um, I think came with being a part of a youth with a mission kind of environment that my parents were involved in. Uh, so yeah, so New Zealand is definitely home, um, but I I grew up in a few different places and um, now all of my family is situated around the Bay of Plenty and so we're all around there and I have after a long time away and traveling and doing lots of things um, with my husband and my kids we have come back home to the Bay of Plenty as well so that's that's yeah, where I am. Nice. And what is it that you do that's the classic Kiwi question is it what do you what do you do? <laughs> What do you do? Yeah. Uh, so this is always a fun one to answer and it often depends a lot on who I'm having the conversation with but um I am a sex and relationships coach and so I work in the space of helping people with intimacy and connection together uh, and so that is sexual and emotional and uh, there are lots of different ways that that looks depending on the person or depending on the partnership, the couple that I'm working with. Uh, so yeah, that is the that is the opening question and then obviously people have various different follow-up questions from there. I was going to say, is that... Is that um... 
like you you bump into someone at a party or something like what do you do is that is that what you come out with or like yeah it de- it depends how up for the conversation I am it definitely changes sometimes I'm like I work with couples and help them with their relationships yeah but as soon as you chuck the word sex in there everybody goes oh okay interesting and then they want to tell you about it so yeah whereas sometimes the relationship things like oh yeah okay yeah another one of those yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Um, not that, yeah. not that. That's not important, also. But yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a lot of um, overview, I guess. But what what is it that you actually do with couples? Yeah, right. So uh, there's lots of different ways that people work in this space. And so some people do body work and, you know, that's like in person and hands on. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, It's it's great that there are people doing that, but that's not where I work. I work in uh, more of a somatic way so somatic just means mind body um, and or body mind is probably more correct we start with the body a lot more somatic is from the body to the mind and it is about those connections and noticing the body and so a lot of my work is in conversation with couples or with individuals helping them to notice their body helping them to notice that connection to their mind and the way that they think about things uh, and also helping them to identify patterns that are happening in their relationship why some of those things might be coming up why maybe their body is responding with like a no I don't want that or I'm not interested or and understanding that uh, from the body place first Uh, so that's a yeah that's specifically that means I'm sitting in conversation with people and so sometimes we're doing creative brainstorming work sometimes we're doing like movement um, but all of the work that I do is clothes on um, and non-sexual and it's in the sessions that we're in is this what you imagined that you would be doing when you were at school? <laughs> like, no, I, I don't know anyone no. that's like, oh, when I grew up, I went, you know, what did that look like for you? No, not at all. And especially because I grew up in a Christian family where there was some conversation about sex, but generally the, the feeling and the flavor of the spaces that I was a part of was no to sex there wasn't a whole lot of conversation it was just no you don't have sex until you get married and um, if we are going to talk about it we're going to talk about how you're not going to have it right and so um I never expected that I would be this person talking about this certainly um, when I was facing trouble in my own marriage and my own relationship and not knowing who I could talk to. I couldn't imagine ever going to talk to somebody about this. I didn't even know that there were people who would talk to me about it. Um, And it finally got to the point where I was like, okay, I have to do something. We have to do something as a couple to help us heal this part of our relationship. And I spoke to people in the church, which was pretty unsuccessful. Um, And we can dive into um, some more of why that is later. But um, you know, I, I just didn't even know that there were people that talked about this kind of thing that, that did this as a job. So I kind of love it now, even though it's not at all what I imagined I would be doing. Yeah. Oh, that, the whole not talking about it thing is just so big. And like I was, I was talking with my parents, um, ahead of this conversation and, um, they were saying, uh, that early in their marriage, it was a few years before. Uh, someone that they knew, mum was sitting with her and she just kind of went, 
well, that's sex business isn't all it's cracked up to be, is it? <laughs> kind of thing. And that was kind of the first time anyone had said anything to them about it. And they went, oh, wow. oh, well, okay, maybe we're not weird, you know, or whatever. Yeah, um, maybe we're not broken or bad yeah. or, <laughs> um, yeah. And in contrast, you know, we had some, um, we did some pre-marriage kind of work with a couple and they quite openly shared about some things that hadn't worked for them and, and it was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah, that's really helpful. I'd ne- you know, it's, I just would have never thought of that. Isn't it amazing? Like when somebody opens up the conversation, there's such a there's such freedom. Like, oh, well, I'm allowed to talk about this. And I think there's a really, really uh, interesting study that came out. It's a few years back now. And they were studying just women, but they said that when they got groups of women together to talk about their sex lives, and this was in a space where the parameters were nobody's to give advice. So this isn't even like with helpful advice. The, the only thing that they were allowed to do was just discuss their experiences and share about how it was for them. And just by having those groups with discussion, those women improved the satisfaction in their sex lives by around 25%. Wow. Just, just with by no talking advice, about it. No education, just by talking about it. So um, while I think there are definitely spaces where the conversations are not done well and we're not talking about it well, it is good to know that actually just by opening up the conversation and being brave enough to start, you know, sharing or asking questions, you can actually help to improve your sex life and your relationship. So how did you end up getting into the work? You said you were, you know, you got to the stage where you were realizing that you needed help. How did that go from that to I'm going to help other people? Yeah, well, I think often, you know, some of our greatest work comes out of our our pain or our frustration or our desire to see something different. Um, and so I, my husband and I together, we had done a lot of work and, you know, we'd, we'd got help from therapists and different things. And that was fantastic. And I thought, great, that's it. We've helped, we've healed our relationship and, um, or, you know, healed, we're on this journey of healing our relationship and I don't really need to talk about it a whole lot more. But then one day something just kind of, stirred me I think actually it was reading about that study and hearing that actually if women can just have these discussions they can improve the satisfaction in their sex lives and so I sent a message to maybe 10 friends just on messenger like hey some of you might know Ev and I have chatted to some people about this and you know looking back I can feel I can realize how some of those conversations that we had in church weren't super helpful. They're mostly all church girlfriends at the, you know, all girlfriends that were from my time in church. Um, and I said, look, I don't have any answers, but maybe we should chat about this. Who wants to chat about it? And so I opened a Facebook group and I said, I'm going to make it private. And I've only sent the link to you 10, but feel free to share it with anybody that you think would be interested in this conversation. And I thought maybe four or five of them would be brave enough to, you know, to open up that conversation. And within four days, I had almost 400 women inside that wow. group. <laughs> and so that was my big aha moment where I just went, oh. And so I, I started facilitating kind of like a 10-day let's talk about it sort of space. And I was really honest as well. I was like, look, I'm going to share some stuff that I've learned that's been really helpful for me. But um, I 
honestly, I'm not really equipped to to manage all of the um, yeah. you know all of the questions that you might bring. I'll you know I'll share some stuff and maybe we can kind of crowdsource some answers to some of these things. Um, but then I ended up putting a hold on that. Some of the conversation continued for a little while, but I said, okay, team, I need to go and like get some retraining on this, and so. I went off and I did some specific retraining around coaching and relationship skills. And then I've gone on further over the years to do things around positive psychology and clinical sexology and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really planned, but it feels like 100% the space that I'm supposed to be in now. Yeah. And, and how long ago was that? Uh, probably eight or nine years ago. Yeah, well, yeah. so this yeah. has been life pretty much since then. Yeah, so it definitely took me a few years to get honest with people about what I was doing. And like, actually, so I was doing, I had um, another business that I ran alongside my husband and I was doing coaching just really quietly on the side and, you know, picking up these skills as we went along. And um, I wasn't super, super upfront about telling people that that was what I was doing. Um, And then, like, it was was pre-COVID, but... um, I started to just, I'd I'd exited the church as well. And so I was really feeling like, okay, it's time to actually make this my, my main thing. And I'd been running the the two businesses side by side for a while. And I just um, handed off the other one and, and moved fully into this um, probably four to five years ago now. Yeah. You've mentioned the church a couple of times in this conversation. Sure. And like, with the kind of sense around it that the conversation in that space wasn't helpful for you personally um, mm. and and wasn't even a space where you felt like coming out and saying, hey, this is what I'm up to now, you know, was actually kind of going to be okay. Mm. Is that, am I sensing that right in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I was out of the church by the time I was starting to really be honest and talk about this. Um, but definitely even in the time when I was in church, and to give some context, um, I was in the church from about 18, 19, and when I came back from being overseas, I uh, I was in the church and um, didn't meet my husband there, but we very quickly got involved together. And so our whole lives were um, with a large evangelical type church and I ended up employed for five years and working there and um, my husband ended up also employed for eight years we had a little crossover of time where we both worked there together Uh, and so we're probably in the church for 10 to 12 years at least uh, together and then I got to a point where I just couldn't sit with some of these things that I was wrestling with and feel like I could be in the in the church space with integrity I was seeing some things about the systems and about some of the conversations and I guess all of this work around relationships that I was doing and we were doing together was kind of like the first thread that I pulled but then it obviously went further and and went into other areas and I went oh cool um so yeah I definitely felt like when I was in the church there were people who would say they were open to the conversation and uh, they would talk about it, but it was from a very particular point of view. And what I found as I went through this work is theologically, I could no longer agree with some of the things that I was being taught or given advice around in the church, around 
uh, the way that I was supposed to uh, look up to my husband as the leader in the family. Like I was really struggling with some of that theology. Um, and while he he's such a good man, like he never gave me any uh, reason to be unhappy with him you know being the quote-unquote leader but I still just theologically couldn't sit comfortably with it anymore Um, and so but all of the advice and all of the conversations that I was having in those space were about well maybe you guys need to pray more and maybe you guys need to give more or serve more or uh, maybe you just need to take one for the team and these these kinds of um sentiments were just so unhelpful and I know I know now why they are so unhelpful Mm -hmm. uh, to women and uh, and into relationships but um yeah definitely that was a a driver Mm. behind why I ended up in this space it's interesting because it's it's actually not that different from conversations that I've had around the mental health space in churches Mm. where like there are so many people that won't go and seek professional help because they'll feel like a bad Christian because they should just have a good relationship with Jesus and be able to pray and it will yeah. go away. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I, that was me for a long period of time, you know, that I felt guilty yeah. about the idea of going and getting help. And now, you know, when I finally went to the doctor and got on medication, it changed my life. Um, yeah. wow. and, and so, yeah, similar kind of thing of here's this conversation that we, we don't re we're not comfortable having, so mm. let's just shelve it and then use all this kind of Christian language around it to make it seem like we're having the conversation. It's kind of how it felt to me with that yeah. stuff. And, and yeah. yeah, I guess that's been probably my experience around the sex stuff as well. And Do you know, I had, I had such an interesting experience. I, every now and then I'll dive back in and I'll go review some like sermons that I see online that pastors and teachers are giving around this. And, um, and I went back to a, sermon that was given not that long ago by a pastor who was in the church I used to be a part of and I don't you know I don't have major beef with that church in particular I'm like cool there's things I don't like and but there were also some really lovely times of community for us as well so um but I went back and I listened to the sermon and he spoke about how in the song of Solomon's between this chapter and that chapter how it kind of fades to black and there's not really, we don't actually know the details of X, Y, Z. And that's because there are some things that should only be between a husband and a wife. And I just went, that's so damaging for couples who are struggling and who have tried all of the things they can think of they've prayed more you know she's been taking it for the team and trying to quote unquote meet his needs um there's there's all these things that people have been doing and then the message from the front is well actually those things they're off limits you don't need to talk to anybody about them when actually talking about this was the thing that saved our marriage you know um yeah yeah it's amazing what what we think in the church space is going to help and what actually helps is often the opposite of that. Um, I mean, I, I'm even thinking of, you know, a, a couple who are friends of ours who um, we discovered as they were, they were doing some um, marriage prep stuff before they got married. Mm. And we found out that their marriage prep purely involved, this is what the Bible uh, says about marriage. It's like, right. 
okay, there is nothing practical that's going to help you. <laughs> you know, like there's no conversations about how do we handle our money together. There's no conversations about, mm. you know, what what do we do in the bedroom? You know, there's none of that yeah. stuff. And so we kind of did sneaky marriage prep stuff with them on the side without letting right. one of their churches know um, because they just needed some practical support and they were getting yeah. zero practical advice at all. Uh, yeah, the Bible's not a good sex book. No. It's not. No. It's not designed to be a, a manual for figuring out sex and relationships. It, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, we've start, we've been talking a bit about the church and, and you know, helpful and unhelpful things. Um, one of the things that you mention on your website and things that you um, you address, I guess, the fallout of is people who have experienced purity culture. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know what it is, do you want to just explain a little bit, a little bit about what is purity culture, and then how have you sort of bumped up against that in what you're doing? Yeah, sure, sure. So there's lots of mentions and discussions about um, purity in the Bible and in the Christian tradition, and like we can go all the way back to Saint Augustine, and you know he's known as one of the founders of the the faith and his discussions around um, the body and the mind being separate, the intellect being more important, the spiritual being more important. And they really kind of vilified the body. So you end up with this aestheticism or the separation of mind and body. We can go all the way back there. But what I what I find really interesting and what I usually am referring to when I say purity culture is this cultural phenomenon that really began around the 80s. Um, And so a lot of it came out of the American evangelical movement, but then it has filtered down because at that time there wasn't loads and loads of books being printed locally. So a lot of the Christian resources that we would get in would be from the States. And so so this message of denying the flesh um, and all of those things that were associated were already kind of baked into the Christian faith, but it really picked up when we come into the 50s and 60s and you've got the sexual revolution that was starting to happen. And it's like a perfect storm, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, So you had the free love movement that was happening and and the sexual revolution and women getting access to birth control. Um, Everybody was kind of post-war then. So there was unplanned pregnancies and there was also a a really big American political force and and element to all of this happening as well, um, with the moral majority wanting to use um, abortion to build a voting base off of. So so there's all these little things. Then we had the AIDS epidemic of the 80s. We also had the um, entrance of the internet being more widely used. And so suddenly these ideas that were really happening in a kind of hotspot in America in the evangelical space became worldwide ideas as well through the particularly through the western world um but it you know did go further afield but so in America they spent about 1.5 billion in federal funding over 26 years in abstinence only sex ed in their schools so we've now then got it coming through our pop culture because not only was it the Christians who were preaching this abstinence only, but they were funding abstinence only messaging in the schools. And so then that was becoming, I mean, that's where you've got the Jonas Brothers with their purity rings and all these different pop stars who were who were saying, you know, abstinence only messages as well. 
there's all the books like I Kissed Dating Goodbye and Every Man's Battle. We had DC Talk, Love is a Verb and all these different songs that they were singing about relationship. And um, and there was all this resource that we were getting as, you know, people in Aotearoa and around the Australia Pacific area. We were getting our resources from these spaces and there were things like analogies about people being like sticky tape and if you have sex with too many people you're like sticky tape that's been stuck too many times and you'll get to your husband or your wife because it's a very heteronormative view of relationship you'll get to your husband and wife and you won't be sticky anymore or you know you'll be like a piece of gum that's been chewed up and spat out and nobody's going to want that and so this is the cultural phenomenon that we call purity culture. There was purity balls. Um, there were rings. I had a, as a 13-year-old, I signed a purity contract and I got a purity ring from my parents. Now, they did that with great intentions, but they were a part of that culture that was saying, this is how we manage the conversation about sexuality. Uh, and so now what we see is that all of those teens from that kind of area, so that sorry, that kind of era, the 80s and the 90s, we've all grown up and we're all in our, you know, late 30s to 40s, somewhere around there. And we're now in these relationships and having to navigate, oh, some of these purity culture myths, they really were damaging for my relationship. It turns out I can't suppress my sexuality for years and years and then just flick a switch on the day that I get married and I'll be good to go. It doesn't work like that. That's not how the body works, which is why I love working in this somatic space where we actually are asking the body and working with what the body knows about mm. this. Because I think with these messages of purity culture, while we may not fully understand them, uh, how we how we receive them, we may not have a really strong cognitive understanding of the messages, our body felt and absorbed these messages. Things like um, for women, like your body is dangerous, you need to cover it up, you shouldn't cause men to lust or stumble. Uh, you know, don't be alone. We had the, the Billy Graham rule, like don't be alone in a room with a closed door with somebody of the opposite sex. It's too dangerous. Um, so uh, does does that kind of answer yeah. what sum up purity culture? It's a big question. Totally, and I, I mean there are things within it that, on their own, don't seem too bad. But when you pile all of those things on top of each other, and then you go, "What are the messages that people are actually hearing?" You know, and like you're saying, people who are being told, you know, sex is bad outside of marriage. So anytime you start feeling any kind of attraction, stop it. You know, shut it down, and then suddenly you've actually trained your body to do something it was never designed to do. That's intensely problematic. Um, do you think the church as a whole gets that? Or do you think it's still very much like a like we're still trying to do that? Uh, I think there are small sections of the church that are starting to become aware of that. Um, there are some more progressive spaces which are, affirming spaces and which are um, you know more conscious of those dynamics of equality and um, egalitarian kind of theology there are spaces where but it is still very small you know if we look at the larger kind of machine of the evangelical Pentecostal church yeah. we're seeing like a purity culture 2.0 kind of situation emerge where they're saying 
oh no, well, we'll talk about sex. Like sex is good. Sex is of God, but make sure it's only in marriage. Make sure it's only. Now, I don't actually have a problem with people choosing abstinence until marriage. That's not the issue. The issue is that you can't suppress the uh, really natural, normal developmental desires and um, awareness that teens are coming into in their adolescent years. You can't suppress them there and tell them it's only good once you're married. Like we have to find a space where actually those desires and those feelings that you're having in your body, yeah, you might make choices about how you want to outwork them, but they're still good even now as you're a teenager. Um, and so I think we haven't. I haven't really seen any mainstream church spaces that I feel like are doing this well yet. I'd love to see some, yeah. but I haven't yet. Yeah. I guess, I mean, in my own experience, hearing those messages and not knowing what to do with the way I was feeling was part of what led me into pornography. And to then find, I guess, or to develop my sexuality in a way that actually was inherently unhelpful, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm a long way past, you know, pornography's dirty and, you know, which is kind of the messages I got as a, as a kid was, you know, pornography's bad and wrong and dirty and whatever. I'm just like, actually, I just think it's really unhelpful. It didn't teach me a healthy sexuality. And so, yeah. and that's what I brought into my marriage, you know, this. Yeah years and years of this unhealthy training because I'd not known how else to do it because we weren't allowed to talk about that. And mm. and then I guess the shame that came on me because of all of that as well, because it was talked about mm. as dirty and gross and mm. and you don't want to disappoint your heavenly father or, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, yeah. that there was all the shame attached to it. Is Do you find that shame is a big thing? with your clients? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is such a heavy, heavy weight for people to bear. You know, you. I agree with you that porn is not a great educational resource and the Bible is actually not a great educational resource either about sex. So we have to find spaces where we can talk about sex in ways that are shame-free and accurate and informative and open um, and when we bring shame into the picture it, like things things in the darkness and in under the weight of shame feel almost unbearable for an individual to carry by themselves but suddenly you bring some of those things out into the light and out into the open and shame loses its grip and loses yeah. its hold right it's it's really interesting to me that evangelical adolescents are actually the least likely to expect sex to be pleasurable and they're the most likely to expect that having sex will make them feel guilty. So from the get-go, shame is kind of baked in to their story and their expectation about sex. And then, yeah, you add, you know, I've been viewing pornography and I feel really awful about that because that's what I've been taught. Well, okay, add a little more weight to that shame. Um, add the the weight for women of you know your body is dangerous and hey you've you've hit puberty and you've got curvy and it's a little bit harder to cover the bust or you're just trying to figure out clothes that make you feel good but actually now you're feeling like you have to cover up or well, there's another weight of shame um, 
we know like statistically that women who are highly religious are far more likely to experience shame and that actually manifests in physical symptoms as well for women particularly there's ways that this this plays out for men as well but the statistics for women and how shame for overly um for in highly religious spaces plays out is really interesting so with vaginismus or dyspareunia physical therapists and pelvic floor therapists they've known for years and now we've got data to back it up that this is a condition that's far more common in religiously conservative women than the general population so that's the weight of shame like it actually plays out in physical symptoms that prevent us from having good healthy sex lives wow and i mean that like you you were talking before about the sort of the mind body separation that augustine and others Mm. brought into the church which actually i mean when you go back, it's all Greek philosophy. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. come from the Bible at all. Um, sure. But, you know, this, even just that, that stuff you were talking about shows how much of a load of garbage that is, that actually yeah. what is happening in our mind and what is happening in our body are so intrinsically related mm-hmm. that actually we can't separate them. And yeah. And yet we we think in the church often that we can just have these thoughts and we can believe enough or we can, you know, commit to something strongly enough. And then, like you say, when we get married, we can let all that go and now we can perform well. Or I think it's really important to bring into the conversation here as well that um, this applies for people who are in relationships and who are married. But the way that shame has affected people who were single is really big as well. The way that it's um, in, in in different ways, but still really heavy. The way that this has affected, you know, our community who identify as a part of the LGBT plus community, the shame for them has been particularly different. The way that this affects people of color, that all of these different minority spaces and marginalized spaces, there's also um, intersections and how this crosses over and so I'm aware when we, whenever we have this conversation that the church presented this as a very heteronormative conversation it's about when you get married and men and women but I want to make sure that people who are listening also know that there's ways that these intersections um, have also been incredibly heavy with shame and yeah, uh, yeah. so I just I wanted to yeah. add that to the conversation I mean, that's that's really important because essentially when I look at purity culture, not only is it heteronormative, but it's also very patriarchal, mm-hmm. that purity culture. And so... And racist, oh, to be honest. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I look at the, the patriarchal side of things and you, there were messages all over the place about how women should dress. Mm-hmm. You know, I could I could go to church in shorts and a singlet girls had to cover up so that we didn't have our thoughts, you know, stolen from being able to focus on God during worship. And it's like, well, I mean, there's that whole passage where Jesus is like, if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. You know, we never got told that. There's not very many blind Christian men, is there? No, there's not. But even like, like thinking about it and going, you've got these churches where the men are going, we're in charge you know, we're the only ones able to be in charge. 
but don't dress funny because you'll make us go astray because we can't control ourselves. So we can be in charge of everything except our own sexual desire yeah. and bodies. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's once you start picking it apart, there's some very ridiculous messaging that went on um, and that goes on still. Yeah. And yet it's just kind of this widely accepted thing. And it's just laid layers and layers of shame on people, particularly mm. women, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And, you know, as a, a dad of two girls, I'm pretty fierce about this, you know, yeah. that, that actually uh, I'm not going to have a bar of it when it comes to some of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, how do you go about undoing some of that damage? Yeah, well, I, it's, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, your parenting and you won't have a bar of it. And I do think that that is often a pinch point for people. They start, they have their kids and they are raising these kids and they're like, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to think about how I want to do this differently because I know I don't want to do it the same way. Um, and I have a 14 and a 16 year old now and definitely as you go through this process if you happen to be a parent they will press all of your buttons as you go through this process and so uh, I when I think about what does it look like to go forward um, I think it looks like getting healing for ourselves first especially if we're parents um, I think it looks like facing some of those messages that we were taught and thinking thinking actively about what would I rather believe about myself, about my body, about my relationship, about my sexuality? What would I rather believe that I'm going to teach to my children and pass on if you have them? Um, and actually connecting to the goodness of your body. So connecting to the way that your body feels and senses, desire, arousal, pleasure. And pleasure doesn't have to just be sexual. You know, there's so many ways that our bodies can experience pleasure. What I find so interesting is that for people who've been a part of these environments and cultures, it's not just sexual pleasure that we've shut down. We've actually shut down a lot of other areas where we could be experiencing pleasure in our lives. So Sometimes for a lot of clients, we'll start with some really basic pleasure noticing practices. Like, where does it feel good? What what feels good to your body? Is it a warm shower? Is it the coffee you have in the morning? Um, like, what feels good to you? And so I would say start there. Start yeah, with cool. noticing the messages and then noticing what you want to replace them with and how pleasure shows up in, in all parts of your life. Yeah, that's amazing. Because you're right. It once you start shutting down some things, oh, like I guess as an example of that, when I finally managed to break free from pornography, um, which was a, a massive struggle to do because it had become a, a compulsion that mm. um, kind of took over my life. But having broken free from that and spent a period of time without that in my life, I actually started noticing things like how amazing trees are. You know, <laughs> I was like, Oh, driving along with Bex, I was like, did you see that tree? That tree was amazing. And I was like raving about this tree and she was like, what are you on? Like, but it was, it was just, I'd started noticing things that were pleasurable right. that I hadn't because I'd tried to shut down all of that, um, mm. in a different area, but it had, it had come across the whole thing. So yeah, I totally resonate with, with what you were saying there. So yeah, I think we don't just heal our sex lives. We heal 
a whole lot of parts of us when we look at this dimension of our sexuality and our sexual selves. Um, so that's why I find this space so, so intriguing. Not because we're talking about sex, but because we're talking about a creative space where we're connected to our bodies. Um, and I think there's so much beauty that flows from connecting to that part of ourselves and our lives. Yeah. What do you love about what you do? I love sitting with people and watching the light go on and watching them realize I'm not bad. I'm not broken. Yeah. I, I'm allowed to feel, I love, I love hearing the stories of people who, and you know, clients all take very different paths. I don't, um, you know, when I work with a client, I am not there to tell them you have to stay married or you shouldn't be married. You know, that's not my job. But I love seeing that process of them get to a place where they decide and they have enough agency to walk away if that's what needs to happen in their relationship or choosing to stay together and choose each other and work and heal. Whatever it is that, you know, whatever path that people end up on or, um, you know, in their singleness or coming out or whatever it is, them finding the agency to go, yeah, this is the path I want to walk down and this is how I want to, um, you know, work and, and show up in this space in my life. So, yeah, I love the people. I love the people yeah. that I work with and watching the freedom and the confidence and the joy that they can get from healing in this space. What's your hope for the future in this kind of space within our churches, within our culture here in New Zealand and beyond? Mm, big question. Yeah. My hope is for health. <laughs> My hope is for a healthy, open, loving conversation without judgment and shame. So that wherever people are and what, you know, however they identify, uh, whatever their relational status, whatever, you know, socioeconomic space they're in, racial, all of these things, wherever they are, that they can have healthy, open, loving, non-shaming, non-judgmental conversations uh, in this space. It's a big hope. Yeah. Um, it's a big, big hope. But, but you're never going to get there if you don't aim for a day. Yeah, yeah. And my my take on that is that if I can have one conversation today with one person that is open and loving and judge, non-judgmental and kind and shame-free, then that's been a good day. Yeah. No, that's yeah. beautiful. And I mean, I talk about bringing a bit of heaven down to earth in the way that we live our lives. And mm. like you say, you do that one conversation at a time, um, yeah. you know, and as a whole, that's a whole lot of heaven, you know, um, but, but for that one person, you know, that can mean just so much. So yeah. Mm. Um, how do people find you, connect with you, um, get in touch with you, all of that stuff? Yeah. So my website is megcowan.com. I'm on Instagram at Meg C. Cowan. Uh, and in either of those spaces, you'll find that I've got something called the uh, Hotter Sex in 10 Days Guide for people. If that's like, if they just want to kind of kick off and, and start exploring this space. Um, and then there's also ways you can reach out and chat one-on-one -on -one if, if that's not quite what you need. I'm then happy to have one-on-one -on -one chats as well. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much for giving time to chat today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for, um, I guess, being prepared to take what you'd learnt 
in your own journey and share that with others. You know, even the the courage to share that with your 10 friends and say, hey, can we have a chat kind of thing? Um, Because the world is much better for it because you initiated that conversation. So thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Oh, thank you. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near I'm so grateful to Meg for sharing this stuff with us. Like I said in the intro, it's really only an invitation into the conversation, but it's such an important conversation to normalise. It grieves me that the church, an institution that's about the promotion of life in abundance, while trying to honour God, actually did so much damage to so many, Bex and myself included. As Meg said, we need to find better ways in the church to talk about this stuff because we can't keep doing what we've been doing. But it's great news that for those who have ended up in relationships and found the sexual side of them tricky, or even detrimental, you aren't alone in that, but healing is possible. So Meg, thank you for who you are and for what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Meg, may you continue to find joy in bringing others to a space of freedom, in their bodies and in their relationships. And may you continue to be inspired to live into that freedom for yourself in every way you can. As you journey alongside those who struggle with their bodies and with sex, may you constantly be surprised at the goodness that comes as people shed old beliefs about themselves and step into the newness of the possibilities ahead. May the church have the humility to listen to people like yourself, to admit that we got it wrong, and to work towards a new and better way of living in the fullness of life. But in the meantime, may you never be overwhelmed by the work there is yet to do, and simply keep bringing a bit of heaven down to earth one conversation at a time. May your children grow to know and love themselves and their bodies in ways that you weren't taught to do. May they know the joy of feeling their feelings and finding positive ways to celebrate and outwork who they are in the world. May your own marriage continue to flourish as you live in the freedom you've walked into. And may the blessings you bring to other marriages and relationships be returned to yours in abundance. Lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Liz Coolidge Jenkins about patriarchy in the church. We talk about her upcoming book, Nice Churchy Patriarchy, and we explore ways that even egalitarian churches fall into patterns of patriarchy that dehumanise and harm people. We look at the way niceness covers over some harmful theologies and practices, and we explore a better way forward for us all. I hope you'll join us. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa, kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga, kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua, kia rite anō ki tō te rangi. Humai kia mātou ai nei, e taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara, me mātou hoki e muru 
Ngari whakorangi a mātou i te kino 